Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And welcome back to Couched. We are thrilled to welcome two brilliant guests. First, Dr. Lara Shihai is Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at George Washington University, clinician, activist, and co-author with Stephen Shihai of Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, Practicing Resistance in Palestine, recent winner of the Palestine Book Award. We are also joined by Dr. Gail Lewis, author, academic, psychoanalytic psychotherapist, and activist. She has authored an impressive array of books and articles rooted in Black feminist and anti-racist struggle, including Race, Gender, and Social Welfare, Encounters in a Post-Colonial Society. Please go to our website to read more about their many achievements and published work. Go to www.couchedpodcast.org. Thank you, Billy. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. We're so honored to have you both with us today. And we want to welcome our listeners, both first time and returning. So we're eager to get right into what I'm sure will be a vitally important and fresh discussion of perspectives to which many in our field are underexposed. So let's begin. Gail, if you could start us off by saying or speaking to a bit about your way into connecting the personal, political, and psychoanalytic. And of course, this is a very huge question. So you can start as locally or globally as you wish. Thank you. First of all, let me just say I'm really excited to be here and thank you for inviting me. It's just a real honor, actually, to be in conversation with Lara and to be on your show. So that's brilliant. Thank you. Wow, that's a huge question. I think I probably should start it, though, in the place where I often start this. is One is, is what was happening in the kitchen. My mother's and grandmother's knees as they would prepare food and do the business of domestic labour. And the other one is what was happening on the streets in 1950s, 1960s, mid-20th century London, declining empire the state become ever more transparently racist in Britain as our presence, our being African-Caribbean, South Asian, and at that time, a smaller community of people from the African continent directly. Now, that's the largest black population, in fact. So what was happening? And they were divided in my mind, in a way. And I became, quite early on, I became an apprentice activist. I was a kid, in a sense, and I didn't quite know what I was doing. And I joined the local Young Communist League and the Woodcraft folk, which was the equivalent of the Scouts, but for the children of communists. And we do all the stuff that Scouts and Guides did kind of stuff. And I wasn't very good at sustaining that, so I didn't sustain it for long. But I knew there was something about class politics that really mattered. And I knew that because my white grandmother and indeed my white grandfather, were really socialist in terms of class, in terms of a class politics. My grandfather was 
much more racist alongside that. My grandmother not, but class mattered. So we knew what class was. We were quite poor. So it mattered in the household and it mattered as a politics, as an ideological position. And followed that track and eventually quite early on got connected to black groups. And then my orientation was around anti-racism and anti-imperialism, always linked to a question of a class politics. And at that point, not really a gender politics for me. That would come a bit later. At the same time, life at home, as it were, was totally structured by the bringing into the home of the structural relations of class and the structural relations of race. White mother, black father, father having come from Jamaica as a migrant, sort of a Windrush generation person. And we were subjected to racism, like just all the time, all the time, from the smallest to the biggest. And in my piece, Birthing Racial Difference Conversations with My Mother and Others, you get some sense of that because I try to take it into the living room, if you will. But what was also going on was that that racism wasn't just outside coming in. It was right in the kitchen. It was organizing the dynamics of interpersonal relations in the kitchen. So I was kind of beginning to develop a sensibility to, well, there's stuff out there that kind of gets in here. But how to think it, I didn't know. And Marxism didn't give it to me, despite Engels and the family and all that kind of stuff. It didn't really give it to me. And it didn't give it to me because it wasn't attending to racism. What structured my early years, apart from childhood itself and being a daughter, was racism. Racism as managed in the household, racism as managed on the streets and in schools and all of that. And I go and I live in Sri Lanka. In 1974, I lived in Sri Lanka for a year, and that's where I got introduced to feminism as something that didn't just belong to white girls. Mm-hmm. Those women there said, what do you mean? You're going to give it to them? We don't have these questions to address. You say you're an anti-imperialist? Well, anti-imperialism means attending to the gender economies as well. So they kind of schooled me and sent me back, tasked me back to London to get on with it. So I do that, and I find my way to the Brixton Black Women's Group, which is a black women's organization one of the early ones in South London, which is a very black population, especially Caribbean at that time. So it made sense to me. And I was fanatically activist. I was doing stuff all the time. It was such an urgent time in this country. As you'll know from the news, it's totally urgent now here, but it was really urgent and it felt that we needed to raise all the questions of anti-racism, misogyny, class politics in an anti-imperial frame. So that's the kind of work I did. And if you notice, I'm still keeping it out. I'm still out on the streets, as it were. And frankly, I didn't know what to do with the stuff that's apparently called the personal. In the black groups we were in, we had to read. So we read Fanon. So that which is to say, a shorthand to say, and which is something that psychoanalytic community really needs to get its head around wherever we're practicing, is that Fanon introduces us to what he calls sociogeny, which is a way of thinking that there isn't a divide between what apparently is in here which we might call intrapsychic life, we might call affective interiority, all those kinds of things, alongside external social and cultural life. But actually, they are manifestations of the same thing. And the, the sickness in the social can be the sickness in the psychic. 
but also the potential in the social can be the potential in the psychic as well. That's the point. But in the early reading, I didn't really get that. And that's because I didn't know about psychoanalysis. I was a Marxist. Psychoanalysis was the petty bourgeois devil. So you didn't bother yourself with those things of interiority. So I became an activist and I then became an academic later in life. And because I'm writing around social policy and the ways in which social policy itself is both a racist and racializing formation and is one of the institutions whereby the making of Britain as continuously racist is let rolled out. So who has access to services and benefits and who doesn't? What are the criteria for those? And the way they're all structurally organized through hierarchies of human worth, basically. And I'm doing that work. And I also go into, because of a kind of a crisis when my my mother died before my grandmother, and when they both died, I kind of had a collapse. And I go into, anal- well, first of all, into psychotherapy myself, it becomes an analysis. And now I'm in there as this thing called a patient, and that's a very weird thing, but it's really helping me. And it's showing me that the work I'm producing academically is because I'm in love with Foucault and I'm still in love with Marx and all that. And it's increasingly ever more devoid of people. (laughs) It's Mm. full of theoretical concepts. But where is the life of the kitchen, the life of the streets? Where are they? Where are the people? Where are the conversations from the bus stop? When you stand at the bus stop and you're told something that travels with you and you think, I really need to think about that in my work from this person who I just had a chat with at the bus stop. I don't know them. They've gone off. But they've given you a gift of something about how the state operates, say, or how they're managing to feed their kids at a time when more and more people are at the food bank. This is something that just happened the other day for me. So I'm doing that and I think, how am I going to make this more, what we call in this country, experience near my work? And I know I'm beginning to understand the vibrant potential of experience near work because I'm on the couch. And although I'm doing that with a white woman, actually a white woman who saved my life, I'm understanding that there's another register of talk that if if that space can be open to the psychic life of the structural, as it lay down in this body, in this person, in me, then there's something that might be a potential space that could open up. And then I begin to think, oh, I need to start telling my own story differently because it's a sociological story that tells us something about the gendered, raced, classed, interpersonal of the kitchen life of those structures of inequality. And that's kind of the journey that I took. I am so happy I asked that question. That was such a beautiful (laughs) answer. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts pinging about that you want to engage with. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, thank you so much. And thank you for giving me the honor of being in conversation with my beautiful comrade and somebody who provides such inspiration for me and not in in the way in which you said, Gail, that where are the people? And I think this is for me, the most important part is like, you are one of those people and you're writing for me, the peopleness of it, the affective layeredness of it is so just jumps off the page. And so before I even got to meet you, 
there you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. I find resonance in your story and in different trajectories, of course, in different generations in some way, but the through line feels very familiar, which brings me back to Fanon too, about the logics of how structures work and who structures include and who they don't include and who's imagined and disimagined. And I think that's my entry point. So here's me a Lebanese Arab born in a tiny hamlet that's called Qala, which means fortress, <laughs> born to a religious minority in Lebanon, Druze, which are very sort of closed off onto themselves. But there's something very specific about being born in Lebanon. There's a way in which we're like, you drink politics in your water. You're born into being political. Part of it is what colonialism does to a country and living in the wake of that. I also was born during the civil war. So that's already there. My family was very politicized. My father was very active. And then of course you have Palestine. That is right alive and well, the least of which was because of Israeli invasion of Lebanon and occupation of Southern Lebanon. And then living under those conditions where a colonial system separated two peoples that were the same and displaced hundreds of thousands who live in refugee camps in Lebanon. And so that's my birthplace. Like a lot of people that look to, you know, when infrastructure is sort of falling apart, my folks look to leaving Lebanon to, quote, find a better life. Mm -hmm. My dad tried to hold out as much as possible and then finally decided to join his brother who had gone to Canada a decade earlier. And we found ourselves settlers in a settler colony in Canada. And at the time, of course, I didn't know that. I have a memory of like pretending to speak English with my brother in our grandmother's room in my dad's ancestral home and just speaking nonsense. <laughs> but that was like, we're practicing English. And it's really interesting for me now, if you flip it back around and you see all my work on coloniality and colonialism and like, what is the interior of those two kids who, without being told, recognize already that the register in which they were born will no longer be their register. And there was something exciting about gaining that language. So we moved to Alberta, Canada, the, the most conservative province in Canada. Again, coming into it, not knowing anything. And we lived in a thousand population. So I went from a hamlet to a thousand population town called Killam. And it was oil rigs and all that. My folks and my uncle's family were the two Arab families in town. And the rest of the folks were white, save for one Korean family and one Chinese family. And so we found ourselves in a place that was already marked by race, even its absence. And of mm -hmm. course, by anti-Indigenous sentiment. And as a kid, you're hearing these things and then later you piece them together. And the thing that I think connected me to this piece of Fanon when I later read him in graduate when I got introduced to him, or actually I found that I needed him because <laughs> it was not being taught to me, was what you feel viscerally but don't have words for. And that's the entry point to psychoanalysis. Like I didn't feel that I ever belonged. My first memory in Canada was walking into kindergarten and thinking everybody was a twin and I was the one that was left out. 
And so mm-hmm. that's a racial memory without even realizing it's racialized. And I'm a light-skinned Arab. I need to name that. I'm a very light-skinned Arab with potentially blue eyes. But that doesn't save me because you're other already. And I was already made and marked to feel that way. And then there's the immigrant mm-hmm. piece of that. So those racialized experiences are very much there. And I think we were made to feel othered. There were many racial epithets that were thrown our way. My brother, who's older than me and darker than me, had a harder time. So when you were talking about race politics being alive in the home, it was very much that. And then over top of it, we were, we were tasked with organizing the alien world for my parents. We were the interlocutors. We were the translators. We had to be the ones who translated experience for them. I am very grateful to my parents that they're probably the only immigrants in the world that said we will go somewhere for seven years and actually said only seven years and not ended up staying for generations. <laughs> and I think what really drove that to get back to how does the psychic and the social and the political really come in, what really drove that was my brother was about to go into high school. And I remember hearing my parents having this conversation that if we stay here, we will lose him. And at the time, mm. I'm not sure that I really understood what that meant. But now I know, I mean, I did and I didn't. I knew that it meant he would take on cultural affinities that weren't ours, so to speak. He would be lost to my parents. He would be lost to Lebanon. Lebanon was always alive, right? My mom would constantly be buying things and storing them away for when we go back. So it was always alive. But that was really the dividing line. It was, we will lose him. And so they made the decision to go back. And I thank them for that decision. Every day, my life changed entirely. (laughs) But I felt what belonging meant for the first time. And it's laughable, right? To be like, I went to high school and I felt belonging because the sort of trope is you go into high school and you're like alienated and all of that. But there was something so powerful about not having to translate who I was, what my experience was, but then having to learn a whole other new register. Right. Because I didn't have any experiences with Lebanon in the way that my counterparts did. So high school in Lebanon, it was an English speaking high school, which is why it's always funny when folks are like, oh, you speak English so well. And I'm like, well, my schooling (laughs) is in English. That's, That's where that comes from. And it was a British missionary school. So that is also like when folks are like the political doesn't belong. It's like everything is political. Our headmaster was a missionary. And every day we were taken to chapel to try and convert us. And this was a mission in Lebanon to convert indigenous peoples into evangelical Christians. And there are Christians in Lebanon, but this was an evangelizing mission through and through. So that started to sort of lift up. And then really where my political education really came into being was going to the American University of Beirut, which is the hotbed of political organization. What does it mean to have all these intertwining issues of sectarianism, political education, gender, liberation? What does it mean to be anti-imperialist? What does it mean to forego identifications that Lebanon has in the context of the Arab world, which is seen as more modern, as France's protege, all these sorts of things, and to really push up against those ideas, internalized racism, So when I go to AUB, my hair goes natural. And anybody who knows me, my hair is a central part of who I feel I am. But that was a political moment for me to grow into my hair rather than chemically straighten it, which is what I had done up until that point. 
And I was young, I was 17, but still such a pivotal moment of like, okay, this is what happens. I studied English literature where psychoanalysis is well and alive. (laughs) And it wasn't until I got to graduate school and the story of getting to graduate school is important. I was evacuated from Lebanon at the time. There was an Israeli offensive that happened and I was asked to think of what 10 pounds of my stuff do I need to take with me? And that's how I came to graduate school. So a part of it felt like a buffer internally, like I knew I was leaving, but I will never forget leaving on that ship and watching sort of American ships here and there and watching Mm -hmm. and hearing Beirut get pummeled and watching infrastructure fall in front of my eyes and thinking, I'm going to (laughs) study in the heart of empire. Mm -hmm. And for me, those things are could not be unlinked. But lo and behold, I got into graduate school and everything I was told was this doesn't belong here. And what I heard over and over again was you don't belong here because I just got evacuated. I was here a couple years after 9-11 as an Arab woman. I had papers as a student being signed to be in those spaces. I had to prove why I was there. All of that is political and all of that had imprinted on me and made me see the world and see my cohorts and see my surroundings in a particular way. Both you, Lara and Gail, grew up in families where the political and the personal were so intimately interwoven. How do you see psychoanalysis mobilizing political and social action and awareness? Mm, I could not. So two stories that link to this question, I think. The first one is, is my entry into psychodynamic psychotherapy, first of all, that became an analysis, was I was having some body work done, chiropractic work, and the practitioner was hovering her hands over my belly area, my kind of abdomen area, and she said, oh, there's a lot of heat disturbance in here and she finished saying that and she held her hands and suddenly I literally leapt up off of the couch sort of almost fell on the floor weeping and shaking and crying and saying oh my god I why did he hate me so why did he hate me so why did he hate me so and I was talking about my white grandfather Mm. who was lodged in this body, around this kind of liver area, I'd had an abscess in my liver. So some there was something about mm. this some years before. And this was the beginning of this need to expunge and to understand this stuff that I knew through a straightforwardly political register, but how this racism was right inside my body. Where do I go for that explanation? Chapter five of Black Skin's White Mask, where look a Negro and look what happens to you when you are simply rendered epidermis, <laughs> an evacuated body. And then, of course, we go to Hortense Spillers and not just Mama's Baby, but all the things you could be now if Sigmund Freud's mother was your wife. All of those sorts of, i.e. the conjunction of race and psychoanalysis is available for understanding those embodied processes. So this wasn't now head stuff. I knew the head stuff, if you like. I mean, knew, one's always learning, but I didn't know this and it was sitting there with me. 
So there was a route back to Fanon. As I say, we'd read Fanon. We had to read Fanon in the black groups. You had to read. But I understood now I was open and ready to understand more of what he meant of why we need sociogeny and not just phylogeny and ontogeny. Why we need that? Because it's right here. And then I go and do this work and I'm understanding more and more about my own intersubjective and intrapsychic conflicts, but how domestic they are. <laughs> that was the agony. Not so much on the streets. That was the agony. And so there was that, but was one thing. But another tentacle if you like into this is precedes this by 10 or something years that i grew up in london absolutely with an increasingly un black consciousness but it took some time to understand the character of the israeli state so i go with who was then my white boyfriend and we go to israel and we do kibbutz we arrive at the border and I think, oh, my God, I'm not going to survive this place. Hmm. I didn't survive the kibbutz. I mean, in fact, I got chucked out really by a guy who was in charge of the picking lemons, who was trying to negotiate for his right to be able to go from his kibbutz to go and work in South Africa. So he didn't like black people <laughs> at all. And he didn't like black people who wanted to know about the Palestinians in the village down the road. So. But where I understood something more. It's a bit like the Sri Lankan women taking me into feminism. I was in East Jerusalem renting a room from a Palestinian family just for the brief time we were there. And they explained to me that car number plates identified people as Arab or Jew. And I said, what? What do you mean? He said, yes, of course. You know, we our ones have got a different thing it identifies us as Arab. And I thought I knew something about mm. a state and the way it orchestrates racism. And now I understood how this state gets right in, mm. right in, and declares it publicly. And declares it publicly. So then when I return, I can begin to look at the ways in which the Britain as a racist formation and as a racist state is also getting right in through the things that it sends home in reports to schools, for example. Mm -hmm. It's the way in which our number plates are marked. It was Palestine that taught me that. It was Palestinians who taught me that. Mm -hmm. That was not available. And I suppose what I'm gesturing towards here is, is that those two incidents begin to kind of accumulate in my mind body as saying, we need some way to understand things called interiority. How, whatever conversations we want to have about the character of interiority, psychic interiority, soma interiority, for me, jumping mm -hmm. off, that that's just absolutely central. And unless you have a framework of analysis that can help you bring those together for inquiry, an inquiry in the service of change, it's not just inquiry for it's say it's in the service of transformation, then we're confounded in our project. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that those two Sri Lanka and Palestine taught me was if I'm going to understand my location in a place called London, I need to know the character of your struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you say that line again? I want our listeners to not forget. 
So what I think was really important for me was that experience in Sri Lanka and in Palestine taught me that if I'm going to really understand my situation in London, the declining centre of a major empire, if I'm going to understand that, I need to understand and know and be willing to enter the character of your struggle elsewhere. And that's another way I think that interiority and exteriority kind of combine. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And what a beautiful sentiment to my imaginaries of what a radical and revolutionary psychoanalysis could be. Because as you're talking, I'm thinking about psychoanalysis in its liberatory potential as Fanon may practice it as the colonial and liberatory and black feminists practice it currently. Not, I don't want to just put it in the past is that it provides a methodology, a framework, an analytic framework, a praxis that allows us for the simultaneity of being that you're talking about, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm, speaks mm -hmm. to contradictions, just like Marxism might speak to the contradictions in capitalism and provides us a reason of like, why does one person do this and this at the same time? How do these things have coherence? I think there's a reason why Fanon was both Marxist and psychoanalyst, because those contradictions were on the outside and then sort of internalized or psychically intruded. And I think that's, for me, why psychoanalysis was so compelling. I, a lot of people ask me, like, why psychoanalysis? Why are you in psychoanalysis? Hasn't it done so much harm? And I'm like, your type of psychoanalysis absolutely has. But wait, <laughs> there are a multitude of, and that is, there's a multitude of psychoanalysis that are happening the world over. And I think that is part of our charge is, can we be attuned to the versions of psychoanalysis, not the Eurocentric standardized version that is perhaps constitutively based on the exclusion of others, but rather an organic psychoanalysis that emerges in these spaces where people are excavating a viability of life under conditions that otherwise we wouldn't even dream life can be vibrant. But that's, I think, what you convey so beautifully in the book, you and Stephen, the way in which your clinicians under siege stay open to their patients, mm -hmm. not just, you know, not to pathologize them, but open to them where they themselves are learners to think about how to walk with them to help their livability. And that as a demonstration of what we need to do in our practice, and that's our clinical practice, but it might be our classroom practice. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of Faluke yes. Taylor, our good friend and yes. black feminist therapist in London also, who talks about therapeutic work being everywhere, that the black feminist sensibility is about black therapeutic work being everywhere. But if we just hold it in terms of consulting rooms, if you like, or where we do our sort of clinical practice, that that lesson about being open, even under siege, in the service of livability, it's so profound. It demonstrates what, what can happen with psychoanalysis in those hands. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. I wanted to draw out a point that's in your writing, Lada, but it's very much resonant with what Gail writes, and I think it may reveal another point of intersection in this 
discussion around openness and interiority, you lot of you're talking about what I would say as a dialectical balance to openness and the access to interiority. As both of your thinking often does, you're always balancing yourself with what seems like a paradoxical opposite in thought and then checking and constantly checking your own thinking, which I just appreciate, but that's a sidebar. So the line, you're talking about the psychoanalytic impulse of privilege to transparency, translatability, and legibility. A legibility that often only belongs to those who have the power to make things legible, comprehensible, and relatable. So perhaps a caveat to the high value put on knowing interiority and that we have, to use Glissant's phrase, also a right to opacity. So can you Mm -hmm. speak to that tension? Because it could seem like contradictory, but I think both stand together. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, thank you for choosing that line about legibility and intelligibility, because I think that's what Gail's work, right? This idea Mm -hmm. of Black feminism otherwise. It's moving beyond foreclosures. And I love Gail's piece that you shared with us, Gail, around like, what does it mean to be intersectional and then also be aware of the liberal tendencies around intersectionality to foreclose our ability to actually enter in those spaces or to grant people the right of opacity, meaning it's a colonial impulse for us to think that everything that is inside somebody is ours to take. And what does it mean to relationally negotiate that space? Of course, there's a condition that's consented to in some ways. But if we are going to be aware of locality and geopolitics, there's also a way in which who does the insisting on a particular type of interiority? What do we go dig for? And what do we insist that people are defending against? Even as they're communicating to us, as you know, in that beautiful talk of yours, Gail, that like there's communication happening all the time. But if we're orienting ourselves in Sarah Ahmed's way of orienting towards Mm -hmm, a colonial mm -hmm. entry into somebody's interiority, we might entirely miss all the ways they are communicating vibrancy in life and everything else. And that is the sort of perversion of interiority. Well, and vice versa. It really struck me, Lada, in reading your book, your sensitivity to the work of Palestinian clinicians to stay close to Palestinian culture at the same time they're maintaining a decolonial lens. Mm -hmm. So not to bifurcate them unrealistically, right? There's a patriarchy in both cultures, but they are enacted and enter into people's psyches differently Mm -hmm. based on power relations. And I think it's a really fresh look into clinical work for people from the Western tradition that we don't get exposed to very much. Right. Yeah. It's also about locating the conditions of suffering and oppression correctly, right? Like Gail was saying, when Sri Lankan sort of women say, hey, hold up, <laughs> the feminism is not, doesn't just belong to it's, but the reason why feminism might have belonged to white women at that time is a condition of racism and empire itself. And the same ways as like patriarchy cuts across everywhere. Settler colonialism just really ramps it up. And if at the most simple level, it makes us confused about what is what and creates extra suffering because patriarchy and settler colonialism go hand in hand. And understanding, I mean, I guess one of the tasks that we have to think about when we're working with our patients is if we think that patriarchy cuts across everywhere, which at some level is true, 
but what creates the conditions for an investment in mm, yes. patriarchal masculinities and how possible it is to actually inhabit them, which might also li- lead to some of the suffering, is what's under review for us to consider mm-hmm. and how they impact on the person trying to live their life. Mm-hmm. So if I call to mind the person I described in the talk, that man, if we think through certain kinds of lenses, could see that the trouble was a toxic masculinity, so-called. But who is that in the image of? Mm. A white interior object? A white internal object? Probably. Schooled in this country. (laughs) This country being England, London. Alongside what he was made available to by his grandmother and the garden. Mm. Right. The place beside the plantation where another personhood's possible. And our task is to figure out what kind of masculinity or no masculinity. We don't know. That's the task to figure out in terms of in the room, working with using transference, counter-transfer, all the techniques that we may use. Figure out who am I before? But we have to know that who am I before right now in the room may be beyond the imagination of the theoretical resources I've Mm -hmm. been equipped with. And I need to go somewhere else. Mm. And that's what I think we get in the book. And I think that's what we get from black feminism. Right. Somewhere else to say we don't. And then that's in this terrain of not knowing and staying with not knowing. Yeah. That is where decoloniality comes in, right? It becomes a process of knowledge production that decenters these let's say, libidinal investments in masculinities of particular ways. But what emerges out of that also is a different type of being. And I think this is where your discussion about foreclosures was, is really how, I mean, it just is so well thought through and articulated because it really alerts us to the problems of when we have demarcated boundaries and frame, mm-hmm. let's say, for particular ideas. Because it's an always already, it's a feedback loop of the hellscape and people can't have that liberatory experience as we might hope they might be able to. Can you say more for our listeners, Lada, about the feedback loop as you're imagining it? I think there may be more you can tease apart. And this is from Gail's talk that she was talking about, this Black man who comes to work with her. And again, I love that you said we could potentially read him this way because he acts aggressively or tries to pick fights. But this beautiful moment where Gail alerts us to the fact that if she had only stayed with intersectional theory, that there's a way in which, and let's say intersectional theory as it's meant to be, not as like I'm listing out identities. (laughs) It's a theory of oppression, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And crevices of vulnerability that are structural is that there would be a foreclosure of who he is and I would say clinically what his pathology is or what the foreclosure of his ability to break out of those structures mm-hmm. versus when she alerts us to attending to the garden. And for me, it's like talk about a beautiful, not only metaphor, but also material reality of mm-hmm. a tenderness. Here he is learning from his grandmother. Here he is also connecting to land and food systems and vibrancy and life and nurturing 
which flies in the face of every stereotype that we might think about. And the ways in which we might entirely miss that because we are invested, even with good intentions in the sort of the stereotype foreclosure that his particular constellation of identity might orient us to. But Gail, I mean, it's your brilliant piece. I'm, yeah, no. I'm the interlocutor here and you're right here with us. So <laughs> no, but I think that's what I was trying to gesture towards in bringing him to that talk because, well, I mean, it's also what a gift, but what a responsibility. That's my responsibility. Yes. Is I mean, we have responsibilities to our patients, to our project. Mm. So, Gail, I read recently the novel by Honoré Jeffers, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. I don't oh, know if you guys I've, have... I've not read it, no. Oh, it's wonderful. Mm. And it's 800 pages of wonderful. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's about a young Black woman's experience growing up in a family that goes all the way back to pre-Revolutionary War America. She depicts a conversation among some college students at a Black university in which they're arguing over who had better ideas, Booker T. Washington or W.E.B. Du Bois. And they got into a whole discussion about the fact that a lot of these men we celebrate for their ideas actually took credit for ideas that were generated by women. And that also in mixed groups between Black and white, women, often that white women thwarted black women, even though everybody was feminist, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the lines was, and when have white women ever looked out for us? Mm -hmm. Right. And she manages to make it very local in the way that you are in terms of rooting these conversations and in personal interactions in a novel. You've done such profound work mm -hmm. in trying to tease apart those strands. I really appreciated that. Thank you. It's from places of painful interaction with white feminists, apparently having my back, <laughs> you know, and stabbing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you see, I also see that, especially now, I think in some senses, especially now, maybe this is, although I was in the States all of last year, but maybe this is something very particular to a UK formation in the wake of Brexit and major, major economic problems. In interaction with Black and other women of colour feminists, there's a way in which white feminists so, so, so often demonstrate, it seems to me, a desire to inhabit the patriarchal position by which I really mean, and patriarchal position understood really as a category of whiteness in a world dominated by different moments of racial capitalism and modernity, by which I mean the authority to be the ones who know, the ones who teach, the ones who define what it means to care, which is just to reinstate the status quo of hierarchy, who determine what the future orientation should look like, what the feminist project should be, say. But that's been so much an unconscious, I mean, I think it's an unconscious, but mode of practice, which has led to the splits, but is also why within black feminism now, there's so much of a conversation about 
Black feminism is about a praxis of care because we're trying to differentiate. And that's why I think the loop into psychoanalytic practice, imagine, let's fantasize, imagine we could have a meeting of clinicians who said, I really am here to hold on one side all that I know, clinically and theoretically, and just be fully present in the room in a mode of dialogue with a load of black feminists or feminists for whom feminism is through a black feminist lens. And we're going to try and think what that would mean when we're in the room with our patient. Mm -hmm. I think that as a thought experiment could be extraordinary, but what it would require is such a surrendering of the colonizer in all of us, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. colonized mindset, to mm-hmm. notice when, to call it out when he arrives in a body gendered female. Mm-hmm. Well, and to do that would be to lean into instead of sort of disallow the knowing the character of somebody's struggle, like you said. Mm hmm. Because that's really, and what you were describing about how white feminism has played out is actually antithetical to a willingness to know the character of somebody's struggle. It's Mm -hmm. always already known. I appreciate you bringing it back to that moment. I did want to ask Lara to say a little more about this conversation, about what's so joy-making, actually, it sounds probably a weird word to use, but joy-making about the book is the consistency with which you pay absolute respect to the clinicians and the patients they bring. Mm -hmm. But how what you also consistently show to us is that in the suffering, in the pain, in the attempt to craft life when the condition is death, you show that people do live, that there is, even if it's in death, how could we make that statement really more of, how can we take it into everybody's consulting room? <laughs> you know, because yeah. it feels to me so crucial. Mm-hmm. And it, it relates to Palestinian life, but it, it relates to black life. It yes. relates to indigenous life. I don't want to collapse them all in one to the other, but that sure. thing of living anyway, somehow, in the interstices, somehow. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I love it because it ties into what you were saying. Again, this powerful moment that Romy sort of just really honed in on about knowing the character of somebody's struggle. I love that line. I mean, you you always say something that sticks with me. This will be one of those things. And I think that the way that a state mobilizes to make itself a part of your interiority, it can be traced right? Between indigenous, Mm -hmm. black folks, Palestinians at various points in time, which is where the answer is, is that if we know that that is 
a tool that is mobilized by state discourses, by state policies, as your work says, Mm -hmm. and then also by clinical work as an arm of the state, as soft power and sometimes as hard power when you are training people to be agents of the state. What does it mean to know that part of the character of the struggle is a willfulness and a refusal to bend to what we might call, in our book, what we call, but what we might extend elsewhere, our colonial logics of reality. What does it mean to uplift and feed people's clarity rather than Mm. turn into Fanon's confusion mongers and instead support? And here's where the collapse of clinic and street come back to where you first started us is what if that kitchen is in the clinic is in the street? And we say it's the people in there having these conversations that have intimate knowledge of their material reality and their conditions. And our Mm. questions, even though they're Mm. intended Mm. to clarify, are clarifying for whom? I have yet to meet Mm -hmm. somebody who lives under oppression that is confused about that oppression or what is needed to upend that oppression. We are also thinking about the ways in which communal building is a central part of that and to recognize that people are building life Mm. as an unwillingness to disappear or to be disappeared yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. right and we can lend ourselves to that struggle psychoanalysis and clinicians have a central part of that because the endless joy and power and vibrancy that came out of joining people in their life making is something that has changed me forever. I will never look at clinical work or people or the struggle ever mm. the same mm. again. Mm. 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 Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Couched is funded by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and the Psychoanalytic Society of NYU. The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.